Walter Balper, the T1 of Brass, and Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio, my guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio, making his weekly Monday appearance. His weekly Monday appearance on a Tuesday is the managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron. What it follows, Dave Cameron answers baseball questions. Questions pertaining to, for example, Houston Astros outfielder George Springer, Houston Astros pitchers Dallas Keuchel and Colin McHugh, Detroit Tigers pitcher Justin Verlander, who's preventing fewer runs than he used to prevent, and a host of others. Dave Cameron also shares his opinions on how he views uh, every edition of Fangraphs Audio. Well, that's that's the subplot of every podcast. (laughs) Dave Cameron analyzes all baseball while Carson Sestouli gets all baseball wrong. It is Fangraphs Audio. It does feature managing editor of Fangraphs, Dave Cameron, and it begins right now. Which is uncommon. Uh, yeah, we'll see if that lasts. Yeah, we'll see if that lasts. For the moment, though, the uh, both of the record the recording application uh, is fine, and also so is our connection. Good. Yeah. Uh, things going well there in uh, in Winston Salem. Uh, yeah, just hot. Oh yeah. Oh, so hot already? Is that a new development? No, I mean it's a new development every year that it gets hot in May. May is the May is the month, you think? Yeah, I mean it's supposed to be spring, but it, it well, summer comes early here. Yeah, you know today is a day uh, over here in uh, Paris, France, where and we've had a couple of these recently. I don't know if you are having any of these. It's like uh, simultaneously a little bit cold, not not very cold, but it's maybe sixty degrees, but also humid. Oh yeah. So, so it's uh so it's like overcast and humid and and but but not not hot and so it's. Very difficult to prepare for it in terms of uh, when one is dressing oneself. Well, let's be honest. You're not going outside. Well, yeah, I did go outside, Cameron, today. I, I will make one trip outside every day. It's a walk to the cafe and then a walk back from the cafe uh, where I once again do – I will sit down at my apartment doing the same things I was just doing at the cafe. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go, which in this case was working on a uh, post that – will be done distressingly early. You will be shocked when I tell you, uh, when I email you after we're done with this podcast, and you'll say, no way you're done. And I say, yes, it's true, I'm done. On the uh, uh, most approved hitters by projected WOBA. Yeah, I will believe that it's done when it's published. Yeah. Any uh, any guesses as to who the identity of number one on that list? Um, hmm. Or any of the, uh, anyone you care? I mean, I would think like uh, you know all the guys breaking out. So yep. uh, you know, I, I, it's it's tough because all the guys having good years are already good, right? Or we're already good. Like I mean, Charlie Blackman's going to be up there. He's close. Yeah, he doesn't make the top five at the moment, but yeah. But uh, Troy, well, well, his teammate Troy Tulowitzki is actually one. Yeah, right. right. Tulo's having the monster season, and Puig might be up there because Puig He's is destroying the world. Number two. Yes. Yeah. Right, so. And and here's a here's a discovery that uh, I discovered is that uh, I think what was it maybe uh, a week a week and a half ago or two week two weeks ago now I guess two weeks ago Jeff Sullivan wrote a post for Fangraphs celebrating the improved plate discipline of Yasiel Puig. Right. So since then Puig's uh, uh, Puig's plate discipline has been way better than it had been up to that time. 
Yeah, he's walking now and uh, not chasing the sliders down and away. And right. uh, it looks like he's becoming a complete player. Yeah, there's a real exponential effect, it, it would seems to me, to not chasing pitches because um, all in one fell swoop, not only is that not a – not only is that not a strike or perhaps a strikeout, but now it's a ball and you've just forced the pitcher to throw you either a better pitch or then now you're walking. Right. Yeah. There's a there's a lot of benefit to not swinging your pitches out of the strike zone. Right. As you documented, and I wasn't planning on asking you about this, but you documented that. Uh, and I think also maybe our uh, uh, J.D. Sussman early in the year with um, looking at certain batters, uh, I had also discussed this, the uh, the case of Mike Moustakas. Uh, yeah, he's got some issues with chasing pitches out of the zone, and it seems like not necessarily even chasing the ones that you swing through, but chasing the ones that he's just good enough to weakly hit the corner of his bat on so he can hit a little tapper to the right side, uh, and then swinging through pitches in the strike zone. <laughs> so not not a great combination. No, that's not a great combination at all. But yeah. so So this is actually like, I mean, this is a thing that can happen, right? Is if a, a batter, if his contact ability, well, of course, the, the second part of that equation that you suggested, uh, would, uh, is not, is the one I'd like to ignore momentarily. Okay. However, the first part, the idea of being able to make contact with pitches that are less than optimal, um, that's actually kind of, it could kind of be something that would hurt a player's development, I assume. It depends on the quality of contact, and this is where, Things like O swing and O contact become a little bit uh, not good enough to evaluate a player's because I think we've seen you know Vladimir Guerrero and Nomar Garcia Parra and guys over the years who have been very good out of the strike zone hitters. Victor Martinez this year I think has uh, maybe the highest or one of the highest uh, rates of contact on pitches out of the strike zone, and he's having a monster year because he also crushes everything in the strike zone. Um, I think you know to say out of the zone contact is bad is generally true, but the contact out of the zone, close to the zone, like the perimeter around the strike zone, if you've got significant back control and you can drive those pitches, maybe not bad. It's certainly the pitches, you know, six inches, a foot outside. If you're lunging for the ball, you're not going to generate any power. You're probably going to roll over a breaking ball. Uh, I think the the outside of the zone, generally you don't want to be making contact out there because generally you don't want to be swinging out there. But there are hitters who make contact out of the zone, and, and it works for them. They're right. just very rare. Yeah, right. I think uh, – I forget what it was. Within the, within the past month, Sullivan also did a, a piece looking at pitchers – or looking at not just O-swing, but sort of like uh, very far O-swing versus near O-swing, something like that. Yeah. I'm not sure if he ultimately came to any strong conclusions, but that there are there are batters who uh, will go out of the zone just a little bit, but not very much. Right. I think there's a difference between protecting and chasing. And I think what we see is like hitters who get two strikes, they're going to protect the zone, and they're going to chase pitches on the edges that could be called a strike in two strike counts where they could get a called strike three and their bat would be over. So they protect in an area that's you know still hittable, pitches they can you know either foul off or maybe put in play. Versus guys who are just unrepentant hacks and will swing at anything. Hey, to that point of protecting, this is a um, this is a question I've had and have neglected to ask. Is it generally is it generally the case that swinging strike rate uh, it, uh, goes down, like league wide swinging strike rate uh, decreases league wide with two strikes? 
Does that make sense? Um, yeah, so basically what you're asking is, like, do hitters foul off more pitches? Yeah, or is, is the third strike the hardest to get, I guess? Um, so it's I would... A, yeah, it's okay I if would, you say you don't know, too. Yeah, I don't know. But I do, so I do know that the umpire strike zone gets smaller with two strikes. This is like basically universal. Every every umpire shrinks their strike zone with two strikes. They make it more difficult for a pitcher to get a called strike three. If the hitter doesn't swing on a pitch in the margins, they're more likely to call it a ball with two strikes than they are with zero or one strike. So I would think that the swinging strike rate would go down uh, simply because hitters don't have to chase pitches. Like they they can choose to protect and take kind of their foul off swing. But they don't necessarily have to chase a pitch out of the zone with two strikes because the umpire is less likely to call it a strike. So um, I I could be wrong. I mean, it could be the, the guys because they're protecting or chasing more bad pitches and therefore they're swinging through them. Uh, I don't know the answer, okay. but I w- I wouldn't be shocked if it wasn't dramatic. Yeah, you've essentially you've put together a responsible hypothesis. Yeah, I don't okay. know. We'll see. I'm we'll sure see. someone will someone will figure it out. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Um, someone in the world will do that. That's very good. Uh. Uh, here's an interesting thing. Uh, this is a, I have a question about a player who, um, well, I, I think that he's, he swings, he swings and misses a bunch, uh, but he's already, he's already put up, he's put up one of the best Mays, and that's George Springer. Yeah, he's been pretty good for the last week. Right, yeah, he, what, he's got like, four, he's got like four or five home runs just in the last week, yeah? In the, like the last four days. Yeah. There's, well, there, there's a guy on Twitter who, like, before the season started, uh, was yelling at me that I did not think George Springer had the potential to be better than Mike Trout. Uh, and he started trolling me again last night with, like, haha, what do you think now? So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the, the George Springer fan club certainly has done a lot to gloat about over the last few days. Right. Well, so this is a sort of thing, and, and my guess is that George Springer is a player who is a, a, particularly a candidate to do this, right? Because, you know, I had uh, I've watched uh, his debut with some interest and then, you know, maybe sort of followed him uh, in, a, in a slightly uh, less intimate way over the next week. Uh, of his, you know, over the, you know, the first week of his career, which was not a great week, I don't think, at least in terms of the uh, the, the overall production. Uh, and then, you know, it sort of drifted away from my mind because there are other other questions to ask and other players to monitor. And then I saw this morning a tweet from Peter Gammons suggesting that, uh, you know, it was uh, absolutely a possibility that George Springer could win, uh, you know, Player of the Month honors for May. And uh, I said, what's this? What's happening? And, you know, it turns out if you don't watch George Springer for five days, he can, you know, have like a month's worth of production in those five days. Yeah, I mean, I'd, he's not going to win Player of the Month for May, I don't think. I think uh, they'll give it to someone who played a little bit more. But, yeah, I mean, over the last, you know, half of a week, he's been as valuable as guys who've played the entire time. Right. Yeah, and and I was thinking back to, uh, with regard to Springer, I was thinking back to this conversation we had uh, concerning uh, Justin Upton, right? And that was that – because Justin Upton had started off to uh, – had a very strong start to his season – uh, not unlike he did last year. Uh, of course, last year he was not that same guy for the entire season, uh, and it, does, it appears though that you know it's the case again this year. But you noted that with with a skill set like Justin Upton's, there are going to be moments during that season which will be revelations, and then others where he doesn't look particularly great, just because the home run is uh, such a very important part of his uh, of his uh, performance of his production. Is this is this basically the case with George Springer as well? I mean, how would you, if you were to compare and contrast those players, what would that look like? 
Yeah, I mean, I think the comparison's not that awful. Uh, I think Springer is, uh, you know, he can play center field, but he's probably more of a corner outfielder. Upton in the minors played some center field, but has obviously moved to, to corner spots in, in the majors. Uh, both have prodigious power, both strike out a decent amount. I think Upton wasn't supposed to strike out as much as he was. Like, as a minor league prospect, he didn't strike out nearly as often as Springer did. His very high strikeout rates are more of a recent development. Uh, whereas Springer has always been a high strikeout guy, and he's actually striking out less in the majors than he did in the minors, which has always been the concern with him. But I think the comparison is not completely unfair. And yes, I think Springer falls into this kind of category of boomer bust guys that you know their value is so heavily dependent on hitting the ball over the wall. When they clump their home runs together, they can look amazing, and then they'll go you know stretches of weeks at a time without hitting many home runs, and they're basically useless. Like you know, they're not totally one trick ponies. But they're, you know, maybe one and a half trick ponies where it's <laughs> yeah. like this is really their thing. And when they don't do this thing, they're not very good. So listen, if you had a, uh, if you had the chance, right? Uh, if you, if you look at, if you look at David DeJesus in his prime, right? Uh, David DeJesus in his prime was a, you know, a three to four win player in his, you know, in his, in his best seasons. Yeah, probably closer to three, but yeah. Three, right. Okay. Yeah. He had, he, 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 okay. All right. Fine. Dave, Dave Cameron's right. Carson Sicily's wrong. Is that what you want? Well, that's that's the the subplot of every podcast. Right? It's <laughs> okay. Dave and analyzes all baseball while Carson Sestouli gets all baseball wrong. Screw, screws it up, right? All right, yeah. fine. Three. Can we can we say three and a half? We have peak uh, of three and a half. We could. Okay. We could just look it up and see, like. Yeah, I'm looking we... at his best seasons right now. He had uh, well, he had two over three and a half. Okay. He had three how, in his three. How far over three and a half are we talking? All right, cram it. Listen. Let's, all right, so let's say Justin Upton right now is like a true talent. Well, what is he a true talent? Oh, man. He's a three, three and a half win player. Yeah. Three and a half win player. All right. So that's Justin Upton right now. Yeah. And let's say, let's say David DeJesus, if not him exactly, someone with his rough skill set, which is, uh, walking a little bit, making, but making a bunch of contact and playing, and playing good defense. Right. Right. And, and in particular with an emphasis on that offense, the offensive part of that exchange. Um, or say, or say someone like, uh, someone like Ichiro, right? Maybe not prime, prime Ichiro, but sort of on the, you know, either side, sort of like right in the middle of his decline, I guess. Would you rather like have someone like that on your team, or would you rather like someone like Justin Upton if you assume that basically all are like their, their, their total value is equal, but essentially the way they produce it is different. The process is some, is different. I think, so if the question is, like, which one helps you win more games, the answer is basically the same. Like, they're, they're equivalently valuable on the field. In terms of which one I'd rather have, I'll take the guy who doesn't hit for home runs, because he's going to be way cheaper. Uh, like, Justin Upton, I think, is already under contract to make about $14 million this year, uh, as part of, like, the end of the extension he signed with Arizona, and he's a couple years away from free agency, at which point he's gonna get a hundred and plus million dollar contract because he hits home runs, and he's like a, you know, kind of the rare young power hitter, right-handed power hitter in baseball. He's gonna get paid. Or, you know, you see Michael Bourne, who's, you know, a three or four win player who doesn't hit home runs, goes on the open market and gets fifty million dollars. And, uh, I think the kind of guy who, doesn't accumulate home runs by hitting the ball over the wall, it's going to be much cheaper over the long run. And you can get two or three of those guys for the cost of one three-win power hitter. Right. And is there anything to the, is there anything with regard to sequencing that would or would not help your team? I mean, you know, because, like, if you have uh, someone who makes a lot of contact, takes walks, essentially sort of uh, th- there's going to be fewer peaks and fewer valleys. And does that help your team at all or not? 
Not really. I think most of the research done uh, shows that, you know, there's not a certain type of hitter that is more likely to get on base but not be able to drive in runners. I know people think about this about power hitters a lot. Uh, it's like, oh, well, you know, maybe he only uh, hits 260, but all these times he's making outs that they have guys on base ahead of him. He's advancing runners. He's driving in runners. He's moving them along. He's helping run scoring in a way that the guy who just gets on first base and then no one behind him can get him over, it doesn't actually help anything. That was just a useless base runner. Um, but if you actually look at the math and look at team performance, um, you know, by skill set essentially, like teams who draw a lot of walks and have high on base percentages relative to their slugging percentage don't score fewer runs than we'd expect. And guys who teams who have, you know, low on base sluggers uh, and, you know, pound the ball over the wall, don't outscore the projections. Like the base runs models and the models that we've built to kind of take individual offensive performance and turn them into expected runs scored do really well. And they're, they don't, re, they don't really break down at specific player types. Okay. That's good news. That's good news. Uh, I want to talk, I want to ask you too about two of, uh, Springer's teammates, uh, on the, on the Astros. Um, because I'm curious as if they are sort of uh, – we should regard them as isolated incidents or if they're somehow indicative of the uh, of Houston, something that might be happening in Houston, um, which is – this is uh, Dallas Keuchel and Colin McHugh. Yeah. Uh, now, I think I – don't, I don't, I, I've, now, you've said this before. Sometimes with regard to breaking balls, you know, dividing them into curveballs versus sliders – is not really a it's not a particularly valuable exercise. Uh, there's some some breaking balls that are firmer and some that are less firm, basically, um, and they're along a spectrum. Right. Uh, Dallas Keuchel is throwing, I believe, a firmer breaking ball than he did uh, at least at the beginning of last year. He might have made the the move at the beginning of last year. It's not really that important. The point is that he's been you know on a permanent basis. He's produced some of the best defense independent numbers this year. Yeah, Dallas Geichel is kind of awesome. Yeah, right. He's kind of awesome. Uh, Colin McHugh is a person who was acquired by waivers from the right. Colorado Rockies this winter. Right. Uh, he had, I think he put up some decent minor league numbers, uh, but he's not overpowering. That's for sure. He might have had some decent starts with the New York Mets, but nothing super. And he's also, through six starts and about, uh, I think, 38 innings it is, he's recorded 41 strikeouts. Uh, which seems, which is also curious, right? Yeah. And my point is that Dallas Keuchel in a vacuum, that's okay. But it, when you think of, or, you know, that could happen. But when you think that now the Astros have two pitchers who appear to be producing um, far and above what we might have expected them to produce, it seems as though that, that suggests to me there's a possibility of a pattern. Is it a pattern? Could be. I mean, <laughs> okay. uh, maybe. Uh, so I think what we know about the Astros is that, you know, they're obviously sabermetrically inclined or statistically inclined organizations. So they're going to look for players who kind of fit this peripherals better than their ERA mold. And I think both McHugh and Keiko were guys who, you know, had terrible results performances in the major leagues. Last year in 26 innings, Keiko had, or, uh, McHugh had an ERA over 10. That's, that's not good for mm-hmm. people who, who are not aware. The ERA over 10 is quite bad. Yeah. Uh, but his peripherals were just mediocre instead. I think like he had an next tip of like four and a half or something. So 
you know, not good. You don't want pitchers with an XFIP of four and a half in your rotation. But if you're the Astros, the Bakers can't be choosers. Like, for you, that's maybe not as atrocious as it is for the Detroit Tigers. Um, so it's not surprising that they're finding guys like Heichel and McHugh who are probably better than their past performance. The question is, why have they turned these guys who are moderate stuff uh, not huge. I mean, Keigel, you know, sits 89 and his breaking ball is not amazing. It's a good pitch, but it's not some kind of devastating off-speed pitch that hitters can't hit. How have they turned these guys into dominant pitchers, uh, or at least how have they performed like dominant pitchers? In Keigel's case, it's all ground balls all the time, which I think generally has more to do with command and location than it does with just pure stuff. Uh, and you know, I know Jeff has written about the kind of the emerging framing of Jason Castro, and uh, obviously mm-hmm. the Astros have Mike Fast. It would be interesting to know if this was a a thing where perhaps the it's not so much the Astros pitchers, it's the context they're pitching in, where maybe, I mean, because pitches that get framed and get called for pitches out, out of the zone that get called strikes are almost always at the bottom of the strike zone. The, the the guys were really good at framing with Jonathan Lucroy and stuff. They steal strikes down. That's just where their their specialty is. Uh, if Castro has gotten better at this, and it seems like he has, perhaps that gives guys like Keuchel more of an incentive to pitch at the bottom of the zone, knowing they can get strikes there that aren't actually strikes. And then as hitters realize that the strike zone for that particular day is below the knees, they start chasing pitches they wouldn't otherwise chasing, uh, which drives up ground ball rate and, and allows a pitcher with moderate stuff to be more successful than you would think based on his context. Yeah, and that's interesting you mentioned that because I, I don't think I'm mistaken when I say that uh, while it is the um, – let's see, while it is that one pitch, the, the slider, we'll call it, um, that – has really emerged for Keuchel. It's actually, in terms of linear weight runs, it's it's his two-seam fastball, I think, that has produced more of them. Yeah, he, so I think he's got like a 67% ground ball rate, which is uh, way ahead of anyone else in the major leagues. I think when uh, Mike Petriello wrote him up last week, uh, I supplied him with a graph that kind of showed uh, strikeout rate minus walk rate and then ground ball rate on the XY axis. And, you know, Keuchel was by himself on an island on the, on the X axis where you have all these ground ball pitchers hanging out in the 55, 60% range. And then there's Keuchel almost a 70% by himself. Uh, there's no one who's getting ground balls as often as Dallas Keuchel this year. Right, yeah. And uh, that's good to do because it's very hard to turn those into home runs. I think that's yes, been, right. been pointed yeah. out before. Yeah, Yeah, and, you know, if you get ground balls, then the guys who get on base, then uh, you get double plays. Like, this is right. another aspect of, of a positive aspect of ground balls is, you know, when a guy gets a hit, well, he's, you know, one more ground ball away from being erased anyway. Right. Um, I, I want to actually uh, bring up a, 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 another point that actually has to do – it's not actually about th- this Houston prospect, but we're talking about Houston – uh, eventually, it's going to relate to Josh Beckett. Okay, uh, yeah. Matt Eddy of uh, Baseball America um, mentioned in the prospect um, where they do the hot sheet over there. Yeah, and he mentioned in his chat, someone said, uh, "Hey, Josh Hader, who's a, um, a left-handed prospect in the Astros system, uh, and uh, has, has appeared on the the Fringe Five, uh, the we- uh, weekly edition of the Fringe Five previously. Uh, Josh Hader." Uh, uh, threw a no hitter in this year, this week, and he's not even in the, you know, in the picture in terms of the hot sheet. Uh, and then Eddie responded, "Well, he had six strikeouts and four walks. If he'd conceded a hit, do you think anyone would even be asking the question?" Right. Which is a sentiment with which I uh, wholly sympathize. Right. Uh, on the other hand, however, we had uh, Josh Beckett throw a no hitter this week, 
And I think he it was, you know, nine innings, obviously. And it was six strikeouts and three walks, I think, which is very similar to, to Hayter's line. Uh, and, of course, he receives a lot of attention for that, and, uh, as most new hitters do. Uh, it, I know that you've you've suggested before, I think, and this might be years ago now, that you you believe that for over short periods of time, maybe there's a, almost like a sort of sort of magic or uh, that can occur. Not magic, but that it's hard to assess the skill level of any one player over a span of you know, in this case, for a pitcher, thirty batters faced. But uh, for you. You know, what is more impressive? Is it Beckett's no-hitter where he, you know, posts a six to three strikeout to walk ratio? Or is it a game, uh, you know, like some of those that, that Corey Kluber, for example, has posted this year where, you know, it's like 11 strikeouts and one walk and, you know, maybe he's given up a couple of hits, maybe even a home run, but, uh, but it appears as though he's really dominated the strike zone. Yeah, I mean, I, I think no-hitters are interesting statistical facts and quirks. But if we're talking about which pitcher actually pitched better, the guy who gives up no hits and, you know, a mediocre walk and strikeout rates versus the guy who gives up one or two hits while striking out 15 guys, you take the guy who struck out 15 guys. I mean, I, I attended a lot of Randy Johnson's starts, uh, when he was in his prime back in Seattle. I was at the game where he struck out 20, uh, and, or 19, I guess, uh, against the A's. And, uh, I don't think I, remember those performances any less than I would have had it been a no-hitter. I mean, you know, it might not be the historical achievement and be like, oh, man, we'll remember Randy Johnson threw a no-hitter. But I have uh, a lot of memories of, of those super high strikeout games. Pedro Martinez striking out 15 or 16 guys. Roger Clemens doing the same thing. These are games that I remember just as fondly or vividly as, uh, you know, some random guy throwing a no-hitter <laughs> in the middle of the season. Uh, like, I would imagine in a year, I will not remember that Josh Beckett threw a no-hitter. But when I'm 80, I'm going to remember uh, the 15, 16, 17 strikeout performances where one pitcher just totally destroys another lineup. Yeah. Now, um, it, it's interesting you mentioned, uh, uh, or, the, or on, on that same tone, you, you, you hear guys say, right, um, you hear pitchers say, and, and specifically I want to address John Lester. John Lester, I think he's, said, he's told, uh, I believe he's on record with our David Lorla as saying that uh, he did not necessarily care uh, too much about strikeouts. That was Lester last year, I believe. Uh, and of course, this year he's he's like uh, in, improved upon his career strikeout mark by a, a third. Yeah. Uh, so I'm curious, do you believe it, or, or not, not to say do you believe it, but how do you interpret it when pitchers say that they don't necessarily value or they're not necessarily trying to get strikeouts? No, I think I think it's true. I think pitchers have essentially been trained to. Um, believe, and somewhat rightfully so, that their job is to get outs, not necessarily get strikeouts, and they shouldn't care about how they get them. And I think there's some kind of truth, and if you tell a pitcher to try and maximize his strikeouts, he's the way he's going to do it, especially if he's not a major league pitcher, you know, an amateur pitcher or, a, you know, a pitcher even in the minor leagues, uh, if they're trying to miss bats and try and get guys to swing and miss, they're going to pitch out of the strike zone more. Um, when the reality is the way you get strikeouts is pitching in the strike zone more. If you pitch out of the strike zone, you're going to get walks. Uh, and the guys who get the highest strikeout rates actually pitch in the zone with some frequency, get ahead, and then pitch out of the strike zone. Uh, that's not easy to do and requires pretty good stuff. So if you're a you know high school pitcher, 
you don't really want to go for strikeouts. And as you're training pitchers, you do want the, you know, uh, essentially to teach them, hey, just let the guy hit the ball. He's probably not that good. You're in high school. Like, there's probably only a couple <laughs> good, good hitters here. Like, most of them are just here to get some exercise. Uh, let them hit the ball and, you know, good things will happen for you. That attitude carries over to the major leagues where it's not true. <laughs> like that, now there's a lot of good hitters and, and the best thing you can do as a pitcher is get strikeouts. I think major league pitchers learn that and they figure it out. They say, oh man, you know, I, if I get strikeouts, the other team doesn't score. I'm going to get strikeouts. But I think they still have in their minds and in their, uh, development history, 20 years of coaches telling them the strikeouts don't matter and they're selfish and don't pitch out of the strike zone. So they're going to repeat these things they've been told, even if that's not what they're actually doing anymore. It, yeah, you said you know, if you t- if you just tell any sort of pitcher, whether it be professional or or uh, amateur, uh, maximize your strikeouts, then obviously that'll have um, p- perhaps uh, unwanted consequences. What if you tell them though, maximize your strikeouts while also minimizing your walks? That, I mean, at, at that point you're just telling them to be really good. Yeah, be really good. Say yeah. that. Say be really that's, good. That's your coaching lesson. Be good. <laughs> Was that? Uh, I don't know. Is that more or less valuable than coaching you received? Uh, yeah, that's probably still more valuable. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, I think pitchers understand that the best thing they can do is not put people on base. Um, but I think when you're asking a pitcher like John Lester, hey, do you value a strikeout more than a ground out? They're going to say no, because to them an out is an out. Right. But they understand that not all ground balls are ground outs. Right. After the fact, a strikeout versus a ground out is fine. But in terms of what you're attempting to do, that's different. I guess, though, Correct. if you, if you it, throw... It depends on the, the perspective of your looking at. After the game, if John Lester goes seven innings and gives up two runs, he does not care whether he had 15 strikeouts or four strikeouts. But during the game, where this the out is not predetermined, uh, and you say, hey, this next batter, would you like to strike him out or would you like him to hit the ball? He would like him to strike out. Right. He's, yeah, he should. That's the best way. Well, because he's having one of his be- the best seasons of his career right now. Right. Maybe and the best. He's going to get paid after the season. Yeah. yeah, that's great. Oh, is is he a, is he going to be a free agent? He is going to be a free agent. Oh, that's good. That's good. Uh, good timing, John Lester. A good time to have your best year. Yeah. Don't hurt yourself, though, John Lester. Yeah. Be the only pitcher who doesn't hurt yourself. Yeah. Please. Please don't do it. Uh, let's see. I, I have you for a couple more minutes. Okay. Uh, I, I, I was your hostage. Yeah, right. The, uh, hey, listen, let's, uh, let's talk about Justin Berlander for a second. Okay. He's so, not, not as good as he used to be. No, he's not. No, he's not. Uh, so here's the thing that's been happening, right? Uh, I know you don't read it, but occasionally, well, by, by occasionally, I mean every day, I will publish the site, uh, Nerd Game Scores. Yeah. And so for about all of April and maybe half of May, uh, Justin Verlander was getting kind of bad scores. Yeah. Right? Um, and every time he did, uh, you know, I'd receive a comment to the effect of, oh, what do you, you know, or what are we not supposed to enjoy Justin Verlander or why is Justin Verlander's score so low? This sort of thing. And I would be like, for, you know, I mean, first of all, I don't care. I'm just saying like a divide. This is a formula that seems to, in most cases, represent what is and is not appealing about watching a game. Right. But if, if you want to talk about Justin Verlander in particular, uh, he's not throwing as hard. He's not really missing that many bats. And his defense and independent numbers generally are not as good as they have been in past years, right? But at the same time, for the first month and a half of the season, he was still preventing runs. Yeah. And I I feel like that uh, one gives a certain benefit of the doubt to a pitcher who has has always prevented runs and is continuing 
to prevent runs, despite the fact that maybe his peripheral numbers are not as good. Now, the last two weeks or so have revealed to us that maybe there's uh, the, not everything is okay with Justin Verlander, that he's not somehow you, imposing magic upon it. But I'm curious for you, for you, at what point, you know, so like what, you know, during that first month and a half of the season when Verlander was still preventing runs at a very, at a Verlandian rate, and yet not demonstrating the sort of peripherals that he has done. What were your thoughts on Justin Verlander at that time, and and how long does it sort of take you to sort of, or or one ought to, I guess, uh, abandon, you know, what you or what what he or she knows about Justin Verlander and adopt the new information? Well, I think the reality is that Verlander's success so far is essentially based solely on home run prevention. I mean, this is. The only thing that's keeping his uh, run, runs allowed numbers in check is the fact that he's not giving up home runs. He's giving up three home runs and 11 starts. That's not sustainable. Like, there's no pitcher in the world who can continue to allow home runs at the rate that Justin Verlander is allowing them, uh, especially when he's, you know, not striking guys out, he's not avoiding walks. Like, um, Verlander's facing a, a decent amount of batters per game. They're making contact and they're not hitting the ball over the wall. That's going to change, right? So as he gives up more home runs, and this is not a question of if, it's it's when. When the ball starts going over the yard more often, Verlander is a guy who's shown that he can prevent home runs on fly balls more often than most pitchers, but he can't prevent them at a 3% rate like he is right now. When that goes up to 7 or 8% or whatever it's going to go up to, he's going to need to offset those more additional home runs by either getting more strikeouts or cutting his walk rate back down, or he's going to not be good. I mean, this is kind of the fact of life for Justin Merlander. The home runs are going to come, uh, and the only way he's going to be able to survive as a major league pitcher is if the strikeouts go up and the walks go down. There's reasons to think that they will. I mean, you know, we have a long history of Justin Merlander getting strikeouts, and as Jeff wrote about last week, a lot of this is just, you know, he doesn't have the fastball that he used to have. He's not a guy who can dial it up to 98 in the eighth inning anymore, or he doesn't. He hasn't been at least for the first few months. So he either needs to find that velocity again, which seems unlikely. When velocity goes away, it doesn't usually come back. Or he needs to realize, hey, I don't have my velocity anymore. I got to figure something else out and pitch differently. I think that's probably the path we're going to see. Is Verlander's going to, you know, become a little bit less of a velocity dependent guy? lean more on his off-speed pitch and kind of make the transition or attempt to make the transition that other pitchers have as their fastball goes away and and rely more on their secondary stuff. Uh, you know, even guys like Randy Johnson did this, you know, through 100 early in his career. By the end of his career, he was a slider change-up guy who didn't walk anyone. I think Verlander, that's the path he's going to have to go down. It might take him a little while to get there, uh, but it will... It will be interesting to see how long the transition takes because when the home runs come back, he's in trouble. Yeah, so that's interesting because even though his fastball wasn't what it was, it's still he's still averaging like 93, 94. So that's not nothing either. I think he's averaging 92. He's hitting 93, 94. Oh, okay. But, right. but he, right. he's he's down 92 on average. Oh, okay. All right. Oh, yeah. Well, that's lower then. But it's yeah. not the lowest. It's it's not the lowest, but it's lower than what he used to be. And okay. so for Verlander to try and throw 93 past someone when he was throwing 96 past someone is not going to work the same way. And this is going to have to be the adjustment he's going to have to make and say, I need to depend on my fastball less when I'm trying to get strikeouts. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, uh, I think we're uh, – I think you did it. Okay. I mean, does that seem – what do you think? You think you said everything? Well, I didn't say everything because that would be a very long podcast. Yeah, it would be the longest. Uh, do uh, Hey, what's the deal with this August – how do you say, Fagerstrom? I 
would imagine that's how you say his name, yeah. You you allowed him to write about uh, Corey Kluber. What's up? What's the deal with that? He he said positive things. I think you would be a fan. Yeah, I know, but uh, I don't know. I, I you know what? I'm not gonna say it's. I'm not gonna say I'm proud of the feeling, but I felt some jealousy. That you didn't write about Corey Kluber? Yeah, I felt a little bit of that. But you know, I well, I, I think. But now it's the time because, and I think you've pointed this out before that uh, I will abandon a player as soon as he starts performing uh, as well as I thought he should be. Right, he gets notoriety and you're out. Yeah. Who's yeah, the next Corey Kluber? Uh, it's still, uh, oof, it's uh, it's not there yet. You know, okay. I mean, I didn't discover Kluber I think till May or June last year, so that's fine. Right, it's May or June. Yeah, right, right, right. It is May or June. It's time. Go find another Corey Kluber. Yeah, well, there's not. I don't think there's anyone around like him right now, and I think, yeah, I mean, Dallas Keuchel is kind of part of that same club, but I'm not. I'm not a. You know, I mean, you know, Saris has been on Keuchel since last year. Yeah. Yeah, so that's fine. That's fine. You know, there's some young guys out there that are uh, doing well. You know, but you can't. Uh, it's not. It's not an issue you can force, Dave Cameron. You know, you have to let. You, you have to let beauty come to you. Okay. Well, yeah. I I will attempt that in my daily life. Yeah, I'm good. Yeah, yeah. Adopt that. Let that be. Yeah. Uh, let that be your guy. All right. Yeah. Uh, we'll stick around for a second. But in the meantime, uh, uh, thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. Yeah, that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.